Thank you, Anisha. I'm gonna talk quietly because that's louder than I thought it was gonna be. Uh, can we turn it down a little, Joe? Because we all know that I'm gonna get much louder. There we go. All right, I'm feeling much better with that. Uh, how are y'all doing this morning? Good. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, yeah. Good morning. Um, I think everybody here knows me. If anyone's watching online, listening later, my name's Josh. I serve as the lead pastor uh, here at Refuge. I'm excited today to continue in our sermon series called Ashes to Ashes, where we're focusing on the season of Lent. Uh, and today's going to be a little bit different, not vastly different, but a little bit different, primarily because a lot of like what you're used to me doing is like I spend a little bit of time applying scripture and nerding out, and then we talk about Jesus. There's going to be a little less of the nerding out and the graphs and the charts and stuff today. Uh, it's going to mainly just be the verses that we're working through and a couple of ideas that come from them. And the majority of the reason for that, right, the primary reason for that, I should say, uh, is that I want to have a heart-to-heart -heart with you today in a lot of ways. I want to be very intimate and personal with you. Uh, during the season of Lent, uh, those of you that, that, that are familiar with it, it is a time where we largely focus on uh, preparing our hearts to praise and to worship God in the death of Jesus and in his resurrection. And a lot of times what that, what that does is it invites us into thinking about some of the more difficult areas of life, because it is in fact the difficult areas of life that the gospel probably most acutely applies to. Um, Jesus famously says, I did not come for the healthy. Uh, healthy don't need a doctor. I came for the sick. And the vision of the gospel is to engage with those that are hurting, engage with those that understand their need for grace, which is everybody. But, but when we're aware of our need for mercy, aware of our need for grace, aware of our need for compassion, that idea of the gospel tends to, to hit us, again, in, in more acute ways. It tends to, to be quite frank, it can overwhelm us. If you're anything like me, you've had moments, and I was just talking to Joe in the back where some of you in here, you are like huge on corporate worship. You're moved by it. I love corporate worship. Um, I love being a part of corporate worship and being in here with you and singing. Uh, but I'm just not like a crier during corporate worship. It tends to not like get me and punch me in the face. Some of you, it punches you in the face, and I'm glad for that. I'm glad that your face is punched by corporate worship, all right? Um, however, I've had moments where I've been overwhelmed by the story of God's mercy. And sometimes there are moments in a song where I'm, I'm captured by that thought. And sometimes there are moments in a story I'm captured by that thought. And sometimes there are moments in like a movie that's not alluding to Jesus whatsoever. Nice. I'm not sure what that is, but it came in good. It came in hidden, like the music is nice. Um, I was I got so comfortable for a second, I started checking my phone. I didn't even realize I did that. I'm going to put this over here because I didn't pull my phone out, looked down, saw the score of a game. Uh, and so, <laughs> anyway, um, there are times even, you know, listening to a song, watching a movie, hearing a story, where the idea of God's mercy, the idea of his grace, overwhelms me. And y'all see me cry during sermons and talking during group, if you're in a group with me, that type of thing. Um, because
because the gospel just, it tends to make sense when we're put in those situations, and that's what Lent helps us do. It helps us consider and meditate on those difficult moments. Last week, we talked about guilt as it pertains to this idea. How do we respond to guilt? That was a question we sought to answer. And today, we're going to talk about another rather difficult subject, uh, the idea of despair, the idea of discouragement. Uh, In some ways, that's related to the idea of suffering. And I know that right away, right when I say that, everyone kind of always has a universal response like, ah, that's not what I came to church for today. But I think it should be. It should be what you came to church for today. Uh, Because here's the thing. We live in a culture that tends to resist the idea of suffering, the idea of despair and discouragement in every way. In every way. We resist it. We run from it. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want it anywhere near us. In fact, that idea, a cultural idea, not related to our faith, but a cultural idea, the American dream that kind of says, well, I want to go pursue, uh, you know, abundance and have everything, you know, really, really be good in my life. And so I resist the idea of despair, discouragement, suffering. That has seeped into our faith in a lot of ways because even as Christians, sometimes we have the perception, and we'll talk about this a bit later, that if we're suffering, things are going wrong in some way. Things aren't going according to plan. So we look at suffering and we think all these negative thoughts about it. We look at despair and discouragement and we think, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be going through this. I shouldn't be experiencing this. This must not be what God wants. Because really, it's not what I want. And oftentimes for a lot of us, those two ideas are pretty conflated. But friend, the thing is, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, No matter your socioeconomic background, your cultural background, no matter your experiences, no matter whether you drove here today, you walked here today, no matter if you're seven or 70, no matter if you're skinny or you're fat, no matter matter what or where you come from, discouragement, despair, suffering, they're going to come. It will not matter how hard you hide. It will not matter how hard you run. It will not matter how much you resist it. It will not matter how much you block it out of your mind. It will come. And in those moments, it's important to ask a question The question is our main question for today. It's going to be on the screen, which is, what do you do during despair? It's going to be on a slide here. Um, What do you do during despair? And that's the question we're seeking to answer today. And I want you to notice the, the question, what do you do during despair? Not how do you stop despair? Not how do you overcome despair? Not how does the gospel free us from despair? But what do we do during despair? Because it's going to happen. Discouragement is going to happen. Suffering is going to happen. So the question we have to most, most seriously ponder is what do we do during it? Not how do we get out of it. Not how do we overcome it. What do we do during it? That's the question that we want to try and answer today. Now, I'm going to give you an insufficient answer today because... The next 35 minutes, 40 minutes are not going to contain the secret to everything we should do. People have written books. There's libraries of people 
that have attempted to answer the question in a much more thorough way, who are much smarter than me, uh, who are godlier than me. But today we want to think about this together, because unfortunately you're left with me today. <laughs> Uh, and, but we're going to try to address it a bit. And we're going we're gonna to do that through Psalm 77 like we read. And Psalm 77 is a powerful text because it is a lament psalm, meaning it is a, it is a psalm where, where people are just sad. And here's the thing. We don't know why they're sad. Unlike a lot of other psalms, a lot of portions of Scripture, we don't know the backstory here. We don't know why. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing, because right now, in a lot of other sermons, I would be starting to tell you about the historical background of why they were sad, why they were lamenting, why they were grieved, why they were distressed. And then from there, I would need to try and figure out a way. This is kind of the preacher thinking, right? This is how preachers think. I would need to try to figure out a way how to connect that experience with your experiences now so that you can begin to relate to these characters and relate to these words and go, oh, I understand, but we don't have that today. We don't have that. And he said it might be a good thing. Because maybe what you need to plug in there is not, how can I relate to this context? It might be you just plugging in your own experience of despair. Maybe you're discouraged or you have been discouraged or you're worried about you will in the future be discouraged, be in despair, suffer through your own failure. A lot of us who have been Christian for a long time, let me be very honest, you're sitting in this room and one of the biggest discouragements, one of the biggest moments of despair you have is the fact that the things that you wrestle with in your faith have largely not changed from when you came to faith 5, 10, 15 years ago and when you sit in this room today. Some of them haven't changed. Some of them are still struggles that present themselves to you day in and day out. And to be honest, if you keep thinking about it long enough, it fills you with discouragement. Some of you are struggling because of the reality that someone has hurt you, right? That, that you've experienced pain through the suffering of, of just being hurt by someone. A lot of us sit in here with that. So we feel discouragement, we feel despair because we look and go, man, how could that have happened? Why did that happen? And our hearts are overcome with that feeling of despair, discouragement, anger, bitterness, frustration, things that oftentimes come from suffering. Some of us in here, we look at the world around us and we just know, like, that is clearly not right. It's clearly something's wrong. Like, the world around me is broken. It's hurting. And some of us, let me be honest, there's some of us in here, you think about this so much that you got, like, a type of survivor's guilt. Like, you look at your own life and it's like, man, the world is messed up. My life's pretty good, I got to say. But the world is messed up. And we look around and we're like, man, God, why me? And then that tends to be this fueling thing that's like, I'm going to go make a change in the world. And that only lasts so long, though, to be, to be quite frank with you, too. Because once you feel like a little, you know, the, the gauge has moved a little bit, you're like, all right, I've done my part. My guilt is absolved, and I'm, I'm ready to move on. So there's all these different ways that we experience feelings of discouragement and despair. And in a lot of ways, I want you to kind of bring your own, your own thing to that. Because we don't know why. But we do know the experience that, that the psalmist has. And, and I think I, I want to reread it again for you, the first nine verses. I, wanna, I want you to see a couple of things that happen during despair, during discouragement, during maybe suffering that we can see from, from this text. Starting at verse 1 again, I want you to, to take a look at the screen. If you've got a paper Bible because you're holy, read along. Um, 
I'm just kidding. Everyone's holy because of Jesus, not because you brought your paper Bible. But you're a better Christian if you brought a paper Bible. <laughs> Still kidding. Verse 1 says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. I think of God, I groan. I meditate. My spirit becomes weak. You have kept me from closing my eyes. I am troubled and cannot speak. I consider days of old, years long past. At night, I remember my music. I meditate in my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has his faithful love ceased forever? Is his promise at an end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Selah. Those are powerful words. Those are words we don't oftentimes read in the Bible, to be quite frank. Uh, we're really big on the, like, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the verses where it's like, does God really care? It's like, I don't want to mess with those. The verses where it's like, God, I hope you just thrash people's babies against rocks. It's like, I don't, it's a little intense, God. I'm going to leave those for another day. But these are words from the Bible. These are actual words from the Bible. You got, this psalm is basically saying, I prayed until I just couldn't pray anymore. It kept me awake at night. I couldn't rest my eyes. I prayed, and it's almost like my body refused to be comforted. I could not be comforted through my prayer. I stayed awake and I thought about old times when times were easier. And to be honest, it just made me think maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God doesn't see me. Maybe God has turned away from me. Maybe God has changed. That's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. I'm not pulling another, I'm not pulling another book in here and being like, look, let me give you an example of suffering. That's suffering according to scripture. That's despair and discouragement according to the Bible. And I think that's important. It's important for us to face that because I think that tells us a couple of things about discouragement, about despair, about suffering. The first thing I really just want you to know today from the bottom of my heart is that it is not unchristian to suffer. It's not unchristian to suffer. There's some of us in here, again, as I mentioned earlier, that quite frankly think suffering must mean that I am not doing the right thing or that God is not doing the right thing. One of the two, because I shouldn't be suffering. Some of us, when we came into the faith, to be quite frank, we came in expecting for our Christianity to completely change everything around us. As though suffering was going to go away, hardship was going to go away, everything was going to go away as though the 12 apostles didn't die gruesome deaths, as though Peter wasn't crucified upside down, as though John wasn't left on an island to die by himself, not seeing another person potentially, as if there weren't apostles beheaded. We come to faith and think, well, everything must be fine now. And friend, I want to tell you, I want to lovingly tell you, and that's a lie. It's a lie, and I would dare, and man, I'm really, I'm walking a line that I'm not sure I'm comfortable with, but I want I to walk it. It may be a lie from the pit of hell, because it's a lie that oftentimes leaves us going, well, Christianity and God must be fake or false, because I'm still suffering. 
when Jesus himself in John 16 is like, you're going to encounter trouble. You're not going to avoid it. You're going to see it. And the saints that have written scripture from thousands of years past have written words like, I, I pray, but I can't get comfort. I cry my eyes out. I can't sleep. Right? These are the words of the saints that wrote the Bible. Some of us don't write anything. Some of us can't barely pray. I'm in that camp. I ain't trying to guilt you. Prayer is like my weak spot. It's my Achilles heel of the Christian faith. I pray in like three minutes and I'm like, oh, man. I wonder what I have to do the rest of it. Like, it's just, it's, it's challenging. You may be in that same spot. Maybe for you it's the Bible or whatever the case is. But, but these, were, these were individuals that were writing scripture, connected to God, were being inspired by his spirit moving on their lives and their hands. And their words their words were, I pray and I cannot be comforted. I'm, I'm in so much suffering, despair, discouragement that I can't sleep. Friend, it's not unchristian to suffer. It's really not. I'll be honest, yesterday, uh, was it yesterday or the day before? I can't remember. I think it was yesterday. Uh, my, my dad can testify to this. I had the hardest day with my son. I had the absolute hardest day. My man is a wild child. He just loves being wild. You could tell him something 58 times, and the 59th time would be like, I just heard you. And it's like, that's amazing. That's a gift, to be honest, brother. Like, that's, that's incredible. And early in the morning, I'm going to be very honest with y'all. I, I spanked him. That shit didn't freak you out, because you know, most of y'all know, like, I'm, oh, yeah, like, Josh ain't, Josh ain't necessarily against the spanking when necessary. But most of the time when I spank him, I feel like I have a very clear understanding of what I want to do, and I have a very... I'm trying to get him to have a very clear understanding of what I want him to learn. And we tend to bring those together at the end of it. And man, yesterday I spanked him and I had no real clear direction of where I was going. I was just mad. I was just frustrated. And then he had like a really hard day after that, to be quite frank. Really difficult day. By the time my mom and dad got to our house uh, to help us babysit, I was exhausted. I was down. I was extremely discouraged. And I had one of those, you know, parenting moments. If you're a parent, you know, but if, if, you're, if you're not, you've had this same experience with other things where you go, like, I have no idea what to do next. I don't really know where to go with this. And went upstairs, and I was getting ready for where me and my wife, Rachel, were going to go. And I sat down uh, on the floor in our bathroom, and I just started crying. I was just like, man, God, help me with my son. I don't know what to do. I feel like my wife gets really discouraged. I get really discouraged. I don't know where to go. God, help me. In that moment, it's so easy to go, everything here must be wrong. I must be doing all the wrong things. I'm not saying I'm doing all the right things, but I must be doing the wrong thing. There must be, maybe, not must be, but maybe there's something wrong with my son. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he has some type of like attention disorder, maybe this, maybe that. And I start searching for all the reasons why this must not be right. Until it has to hit me. It's not unchristian to suffer. Maybe there's not something wrong with me or my son or this experience or that experience. Oh man, they're all just flooding in. 
the jail has, they, they've just completely opened the jail. Like, uh, they're running amok. They're running amok. The jail system is, they've been taken over. Prisoner revolt. Um, maybe God is working exactly what he needs to work in exactly what I'm going through there. Maybe, maybe it's not that I'm sitting there going, okay, like, I'm, I've fallen short. My life has fallen short in some way. Maybe it's that God specifically, in exactly what I'm going through, has his plan that he's working, that he's teasing out, and that he is actually in charge of. And that he can make something good out of something feeling that feels quite disastrous for me. Because it's not unchristian for me to suffer. It's not unchristian for me to be discouraged. It's not unchristian for me to, to feel that sense of despair. Some of us really need to remember that. The second thing I want to, hi to highlight from this text is that during suffering, uh, there will be times you don't sense or hear God. That's a reality. That is just a reality. During suffering, there will be times you do not sense and you do not hear God. I wish, let me be very honest with you. I thought about things to say right now. I do not have any. I do not know why. I do not know the reason. I wish I could change this one, but I can't. During suffering, there will be times you don't hear or sense God. And that's the way it is. Later in the verse, there's this powerful line that says, describing the exodus that you parted the seas, but no one could see your footsteps. Sometimes you don't know where God's at, and you can't see him, and you don't hear him. You can't track with where he's at and what he's doing. And sometimes because of that, when we find an open door, when we find a way out of suffering, we go, well, this must have been my doing. Because I don't see the footsteps. I don't see where you were. I haven't sensed you. I haven't heard you. And the psalmist is saying, sometimes you don't hear him. Sometimes you don't sense him. Sometimes you don't see him. That doesn't mean he's not there. It doesn't mean he doesn't make a way. It doesn't mean he doesn't provide. But the reality is, in the midst of suffering, there will be times you don't sense or hear God. The second or the third idea is, is a lot like this, to be quite frank, that during suffering, uh, there will be moments, I guess I just forgot to put the background on this one. Don't mind, don't focus on that. Um, or maybe I did. <laughs> during suffering, there will be moments your devotional life is not enough. And I lovingly really just want you to hear me talk about this because in Christian culture, in our, and if you've spent some time around Christianity, the idea of alone time with God is put at like the absolute crux of everything. And hear me, I'm an advocate for alone time. I'm not saying, I don't want y'all to be like, God's, uh, not God, I'm definitely in God. Uh, Josh said like, devotional time doesn't matter. Not what I'm saying. But the fact that during suffering, there will be moments your devotional life isn't enough. Maybe you love the Bible. Friend, I love the Bible. I love the Bible. I read the Bible and little things will pop up on the page and I'm just like, man, God, you're good. And I'm weeping. I love the Bible. Maybe you love prayer. That's like a small percentage of y'all. I ain't going to lie, right? Like that's a, that's a small percentage of us in here. But maybe you love prayer. 
Maybe you just are, you just are so excited when you pray and you feel like you feel God's presence. You sense him. You feel like you get up and you're, you're encouraged. God is clearly working in you when you pray. Maybe you love songs. Maybe it's like, bro, when I get in my alone time, I put on X, Y, and Z. Some of y'all are the Shane and Shane crowd. I put on my Shane and Shane. Some of y'all are like, I'm on my Bethel, you know, my Bethel business. And y'all are like, I put on Bethel. Some of y'all, I don't think we got any, uh, what's it called, Grace Covenant music. It's something like that. But there's a few different ones out there that are like the standards that people go to. It's like, I put that on, and then I feel, I, what, is, what is like the common saying? It's like, man, it takes me to the throne room of God, right? I go to the throne room of God. I'm right there with him. And friend, the reality is sometimes during suffering, you don't go to the throne room of God. You stay right there in your living room. You stay right there in your bedroom. There are times during suffering, you open that Bible, and it feels like words on a page. Not active, not alive. Words on a page that mean very little to you and where you are right now. There are times where you pray and you ask hard questions like, is anyone even there? Am I praying to anything? Sometimes our devotional life in the midst of suffering is not enough. And the last one I want you to think about that comes from the last section is that during suffering, there will be times you doubt God, his character, and his ways. The amount of time that I have seen people let me start saying this I don't think we fully understand that, that this is not unchristian this is human that doubting God doubting his character doubting his ways is not unchristian it's very human again the people that wrote scripture the verses we just read they were in there being like, has God just decided he ain't going to be compassionate anymore? Has he turned away? Has his love dried up? They wrote the Bible. Lovingly, I want to challenge you. Who do you think you are that you aren't going to doubt? Who do you think you are? I want to lovingly tell you, your view of your faith is much higher than God's view of your faith. Not that he belittles faith, but that he, he understands. I mean, Jesus is out here being like, faith the size of a mustard seed. Recognizing that the faith you have is going to put you in moments where you go, I don't know about this God fella. I don't know about this God guy. I don't know about his heart. I don't know about the way he does things. I don't know about his character. Because there will be times in suffering, there will be moments where you doubt God, doubt his character, and doubt his ways. This is what suffering does. And I want you to recognize, I want you to put together this vision that in the midst of suffering, it's not unchristian. Suffering is not unchristian. You're not not a Christian. You're not a struggling Christian. You're not a subpar Christian. You're not a minor leagues Christian. You're not a, a, a kind of second tier Christian. If you suffer, you're a Christian because it's not unchristian to suffer. And in the midst of that suffering, you will have moments where you do not hear God you do not sense God. You do not hear God. 
you do not feel like you're getting anything out of your devotional time. You pick up a Bible, and it might as well be Charles Dickens. It, you, you pray, and it might as well be meditation. You sing, and it might as well, I don't know, insert your favorite, your favorite artist. I had one in mind. I'll learn it's going to be distracting. Um, that will happen. Then you will doubt him. You will question him. You will be angry with him. And none of that, none of that is unchristian. Because that's what happens when humans, Christian and non-Christians, suffer. Suffering isn't unchristian. And neither are the host of things that happen when we suffer. And if you have felt like your actions, your, your frailty in the midst of suffering, your doubts, your struggles, your lack of hearing him is some type of indication that he views you differently, I want to lovingly tell you, you think too much of yourself. You think too much of yourself. I at times think too much of myself. When I go, God, I can't hear you. Surely that means you're not speaking. God, I can't feel you. Surely that means you're not present. God, I feel like I'm struggling. Surely that means you're not doing your part. And I bank everything on how I feel, how I see things, how I experience things, my senses, my eyes, my spiritual feelings, my normal feelings. And I go, that must be the great gauge of whether God is who he says he is. And it's not. I think too much of myself. And at times you think too much of you. And so what do we do here? Because I'm painting, if you haven't noticed, a pretty grim picture. I'm like, you can't rely on suffering never coming. You can't rely on the, on the great American dream of just insulating yourself. But at the same time, you can't rely on sensing or hearing God in every season. Because every time that's not going to happen. And then on top of that, I'm telling you, you can't rely on the Bible and prayer and, 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 uh, and worship and all these other things that usually everybody knows, i got to go to that thing. That's how I get connected to God. Sometimes that's not going to do anything for you. In addition to that, after all of it is said and done, you're going to be in a position where you look up and you think, I can't even rely on myself. Because to be quite frank, I doubt you. I don't want to hear you. I question whether you're good. I am angry at you. I'm bitter at you. So what do you rely on? What do you have to rely on? And I don't want to build the worst vision of suffering that I possibly can. I'm just letting the Bible build the vision that it has for suffering in your life for what's possible. And I think the psalmist has a response to this. I think the psalmist, in his words, her words, remembers what God has done. The psalmist remembers what God has done. Look at verses 9 or 10 through 20. We're going to read them all. And so this shouldn't take that long, but buckle in. <coughs> Verse 10 says, so I say I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will remember the Lord's works. I will remember the Lord's works. Yes. I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. God, your way is holy. What God is great like God? You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. 
The water saw you, it trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water. The storm clouds thundered. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning lit up the world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So what does the psalmist do? He remembers what God's done. He remembers what God has done. Why is that important? Why is remembering what God has done important? Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying he remembered what God has done and then never thought about it again, never suffered again. But in the midst of suffering, again, the question we're answering today is what do you do during suffering? And during suffering, in the midst of suffering, right, the psalmist remembers what God has done. Why is that important? This is why it's important. It's that next slide, uh, next slide here. Because, oh, wait, it's verse 10. So remember what God has done, and then from here, this is, this is why. Because what this tells us, when we remember what God has done, it tells us that our pain, right, our doubt, the silence, right, that none of that stops God from being God. None of that stops God from being God. We may not hear him, he's still God. We may not sense him, feel him, he's still God. I may not light up during suffering when I read the Bible like I used to. He's still God. I may not feel the goosebumps during the worship song. He's still God. I may feel like I'm praying to silence. He's still God. I may feel like there's no path forward. He's still God. Remembering what he's done takes all of the, the experiences that we have and says, but you Y'all, right, y'all, me, don't get to dictate whether he's God or not. God dictates whether he's God or not. So we remember what he's done. For the psalmist, he writes about what God has done uh, in Moses and Aaron during the Exodus. For you, maybe you need to think back through your life to examine what God has done in your life. I will personally never forget some random day that I cannot remember, that I don't have the date for, but I was 21 years old. And I felt empty and broken and smoked weed eight times a day. And going inside of a church that was an old church building, my dad passed through the church at the time. I walked in, I got on my knees on like a random Tuesday or Thursday, and God had me snot bubble crying for 45 minutes. And I got up, and I didn't do drugs anymore. I was like, hey, I got a new song that we could sing on Sunday, right? The whole thing changed, and I got up and thought, that had to be God. I don't know, because I don't know what happened. Maybe for you, you need to think about some of those moments and go, man, that had to be God. And remember some of those times. But in the New Testament, what we read is not Paul saying, remember your personal moments. Not saying that's bad. 
what we see is Paul referencing back to a moment in time that is at the core of all Christianity, right? The frequent call back in the New Testament is not remember what God has done in your life. The frequent, frequent call back in the New Testament is remember what God did in Jesus, right? There's frequently references to this idea. One of the most powerful ones is in Philippians 2. It's like one of the most powerful ones. It's probably one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, right? Uh, Philippians 2, starting verse, I want to say 5, says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man... Uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Paul frequently draws the followers of Jesus' attention back to. And here's the thing. For some of us, we read this and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. We got to think back about Jesus and how he died for us. And you've thought about it already a ton. Except for, if I'm being honest, very little, very seldom do we think about the way they're actually talking about it. We think about the way we think about it. Oh, yeah, God died for my sins. And then we go, okay, I'm supposed to, in the midst of my suffering, believe that God died for my sins. And somehow, the atonement of my sins makes up for all of my suffering. But that's not what's happening here. In 1 Corinthians 1, there's an extremely powerful verse, right? That for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. Uh, go to the next one. Is there? Oh, man. But uh, let's just read it. I have a Bible. You have a Bible? If you want to go there with me, because I think it's worth us taking a look at real quick. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I think that gives us a much better vision of what the crucifixion was like in Jesus' day. That Paul wasn't just saying, oh, it's about your sin. He wasn't just saying, oh, it's about the atonement. And Jesus atones for you because your sins are forgiven. That's why you can think about what he's done in suffering and somehow it evens out. I think there was so much more happening. And I think the, the so much more that's happening is captured most perfectly, not in a verse, but in a picture. Take a look at this picture. Has anybody seen this before? This is called Alexa Menas Graffitio. Uh, and it's believed to be one of the two earliest depictions of Christ in the Roman world. However, it's not a depiction of Christ meant to be worshipped. It's not what's happening here. See, this was an ancient Roman inscription that's now one of two pieces in a museum that's known to be the oldest depictions of Christ, like I said. And it depicts a man standing at the foot of a cross, worshiping someone being crucified with a donkey head. And it's inscribed Alexa Menas worshiping his God. It's meant to be the depiction of Christ the fool. Christ the confused who draws people to worship him, he's really just a fool who suffers. He's really just a fool who took the cross 
who came to the Roman powers just like everyone else has. And here are the fools that worship him. It's one of the earliest depictions of Christ that we believe we have. And this, friend, is exactly why when Paul was writing in his day, in this letter, he's writing and saying, this is a stumbling block to those around us. Because when they see Christ crucified, they see a fool who suffered and couldn't avoid the suffering. That if he was wise and he was strong, he would have, he would have, been, he would have overcome the cross. He would have never had to go to the cross. Man, but this man is just a fool. But when Alexa Menos, when we see that fool on that cross, we're reminded that the God who created everything joined us in our suffering and didn't leave us with our doubts alone, didn't leave us with our feelings of emptiness alone, didn't leave us with the silence alone, but joined us in the midst of the suffering. That's why Philippians 2 is powerful, friend, because it's saying, be reminded of Christ who emptied himself and came down and joined you in your suffering. That the God of all creation is with you in the midst of suffering. He knows the suffering. He entered into the suffering with you so that as we are joined with Christ in his suffering, we'll likewise be joined with Christ in his life. Right? The hope of the gospel is that when we are in the midst of something like suffering, we recognize not that God's forgiven us of our sins and we'll go to heaven one day. I just don't think that's what we hang our hat on. I think in the midst of suffering, we hang our hat on the fact that the God who made us and who had no, no reason other than his love for us left glory in order to join us in our suffering that you're not alone in the midst of suffering because the king came down and submitted himself to look like a fool to the world so that he could join you in exactly where you are. So that in him, you, we, I could join him where he is. Accepted, loved, I've forgiven that the great hope of the gospel is that as we look forward and we think about what's coming, we look back and think, man, that man joined me in my suffering. Maybe I don't see him right now. Maybe I don't hear him right now. Maybe, I, maybe I'm wrestling with the feelings of doubt right now. But that man joined me in my suffering. It's not that he just hung on the cross for me. It's that he hung on the cross in a lot of ways with me. I, I am joined in his suffering. I'm crucified with him. That is, he suffers. He joins me in my suffering so that I could join him in his life. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel, and it's what we cling to. It's what we remember. It's what we look back on in the midst of suffering, in the midst of despair. That's what we cling to. We cling to the man that the rest of the world looks like a donkey. The rest of the world looks like a fool. But to us, we see the saving power of God in that man joining us in suffering so we can join him in life. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we look back on and we remember in the midst of our distress, in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our discouragement, in the midst of our suffering, friend, you're not alone. In, in every season when despair comes, you're not alone. 
He's with you. He joined you. So we remember what God has done. And for us, the, the most powerful moment of history for the Christian and what God has done is when we see that man joining us in our suffering on the cross so that we can join him in his life. That's what's going on here. And so how do we do that? How do we do that? In the midst of suffering, right, what do we do during suffering? Right, how can, we, how can we tap into this idea of remembering what he's done? I want to give you just a couple of ideas. It's not everything, like I said. Like I said insufficient, uh, insufficient today, but what I can do. I want to tell you don't isolate. When you're in despair, when you're in discouragement, when you're suffering, don't isolate. And all of us tend to have that feeling. We tend to be like, I don't want to deal with this with anybody else. Like, I don't want anybody else to really know that I'm going through this. And fam, uh, I just said that Christ came to join us in our suffering so that we could join him in his life. So that our hope could be that as I go through whatever I'm going through, it is joined to Christ's suffering. He knows what I'm going through. He's in what I'm going through. And the great hope is that because he's in it, I will join him in hope and in life as well. The idea of isolating away from other people is diametrically opposed to that idea. If you can't let other people in, more than likely you ain't trying to let Jesus in. And if you ain't letting Jesus in, you ain't joining your suffering to his. You're not. And in that case, friend, the donkey picture, it's, it's much more accurate. Because it's like, man, that suffering is just taking place without any comfort. And here's the thing, because of Christ's faithfulness, I don't think that that necessarily cuts off the blessings of God in the midst of our suffering. But man, it makes it much less easy to see. So don't isolate. And the second thing uh, is kind of something I say most weeks, which is just learn Christ. <coughs> learn Christ. Friends, so many of us don't know Christ. And I'm not telling you got to know Alexa Menos Graffitio. I'm not telling you you need to learn that. What I am telling you is learn the one who would come down to join you so that he could redeem you and save you. Learn that one. Learn Christ in that way. And that oftentimes means being in a group, letting other people point you to him. And that's why scripture, songs, prayer time is not, not worthless, right? Because it does. It fuels us as we learn Christ. But the only way we could feel even comfortable thinking, like, I'm going to suffer. And in the midst of my suffering, I'm going to invite and, and, and connect my suffering to the suffering of Christ is when I actually know Christ. When I actually know him and what he's doing what he wants to do, what his work on the cross accomplishes. Like, if you don't know those things, man, you're not going to approach it in this way. And so learn Christ, right? Read your Bible, buy a book. If you want to know some gospel books, holler at your boy. I got a bunch of them. Um, I ain't read all of them, but, but I got a few. I think this is a great start to thinking and, and reshaping our mind to answer the question, what do we do during suffering? Again, we're not going to escape it, Man, but you're not alone in it. And because you're not alone in it, you have hope in it. Because his presence in it yells, screams, redemption will come to this. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good news, who you are. That as we sing about you right now, 
We don't sing about a God that says, hey, I'm not worried about what you're doing. I'm not worried about the suffering you're going through. I just really am worried about your sin, and I want you to worry about your sin, and that's all. Father, Father, you, you enter into the brokenness of our world. You see our sin. You join us in our guilt on the cross. You take on our burdens. You wrestle with the darkness, and you let yourself be overcome by it. You join yourself into our suffering and into our brokenness. So that in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our discouragement, we would know that we're not alone. But more than that, through your presence in our suffering, in our darkness, in the brokenness that's around us, you would, you would assure our hearts of the hope that we have. That is, you've joined yourself in our despair. You likewise have joined us with your life, with your resurrection, with your victory. Father, uplift our hearts. Those that are suffering right now, and I pray that you would, I pray that you would really like do a work in, in revealing the depths of your presence to them. Maybe it won't be in feeling it. Maybe it won't be in sensing it. Maybe they won't come alive when they read the Bible or sing a song to you. Father, let them remember, let us remember. Remind us of the work you've done on the cross. For those that are in great seasons right now, Father, bless them. Let them enjoy the moment that they're in. Let them enjoy and celebrate. Let us enjoy and celebrate where we are, knowing that, that you celebrate with us. Likewise, you went to weddings and had fun and laughed and celebrated and partook in festivities. You join us in the midst of our great moments as well, and you celebrate with us. So let us feel the, the joy of your presence as we walk through good seasons. Thank you for the good news of your presence in our life through the work on the cross. Help us be reminded of that every day. Let us cling to that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.